We are in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, so if you want to make your way there, I'm excited to be back with you, and so uh, hopefully we'll get some more progress made in the book of Hebrews. We're looking at Hebrews 8, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 9, but because it's been a little while since we've been together, I want to get you back into the context a little bit, if I may. It's a common perspective to believe and understand that the Old Testament is full of prophecies, with the New Testament the arena of their fulfillment. This distinction really helps us understand, really, the, in comprehending the intricate interplay between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's kind of a very important feature that we understand. The Old Testament with its promises, the New Testament, its realization. The Old Testament, again, teeming with prophecies, promises, symbolic foreshadowing. And the New Testament ushers in the fulfillment and tangible reality of all of those glorious hopes. Yet what also adds a profound layer to the wonderful understanding of what we understand, the depth of the Old Testament's fulfillment in the New, is given to us in the book of Hebrews. According to Paul, the Old Testament priesthood wasn't just a historical, symbolic precursor. It was, but it wasn't just that. It was actually a copy of Christ himself. Yes, it was a copy. And when you look at the intricacies that the Levitical priesthood provides and the great detail that we get in the old economy— It was essentially an imperfect, mirrored image of the one true, authentic priesthood of Jesus Christ. And for us, this revelation is nothing short of mind-boggling, especially for the first century church. It signifies for us that Christ's divine role extends far beyond mere prophecy and fulfillment. It transcends time. It transcends tradition, and it becomes the very template of all truth, especially as we see it even in the old economy. And so you can see the struggle that the author presents to this group of Jews that are considering kind of going back to the old economy to replace the substance found in Christ with the symbol, to love the shadow over the reality It's one of the key warnings of the book of Hebrews. We've been seeing that so many things in the Old Testament are typological in picture from the reality of the coming messianic fulfillment found in Jesus Christ. The old order was shown to be obsolete as a means to God after the coming of the Son. We've seen that in dramatic fashion with the rending of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. The Old Covenant pictures were disregarded for the reality. And the Jews were giving serious consideration of going back to that. Due to the hostilities of the Roman government, the pressure of society, family and friends, to return to Judaism, to to return to the Old Covenant. What we looked at last time we were together was Hebrews 8 verse 1. He he draws to conclusion everything that he's been teaching from Hebrews 6.20 all the way up to chapter 7. And he starts it off with this. Now the point of what I've been saying is this. I mean, don't you just love it when inspired scripture does that for you? 
And by the way, in case you missed the whole point for the last chapter, let me just give it to you again. As a preacher, he knows what it's like, you know. The dude on the front row started falling asleep on him, and so he didn't want him to miss the main point. And what does he say? We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. What he's saying, the point is this. All those things I was telling you about, Jesus, Melchizedek, I heard that read this morning, they were designed to teach you this one point. Jesus is not only better than the Old Testament priesthood that descended from Levi and Aaron, he is the only true priest. Always has been and always will be They were just copies of him. Now for our attention today, he's going to pick up what was briefly mentioned and read for us this morning in Hebrews 7.22. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. And you're probably wondering, why does he have such a delayed development of that point? He's taking a little while. Why, Why delay explaining to us the glories of a better covenant? Well, the priesthood's important. It's vital. It's essential. It's actually organically linked at everything that we're going to look at today. What's also important is the sacrifice the priest offers. You know, without the sacrifice, we don't have an efficacious priest. We don't have forgiveness of sins. We have no idea if we're right with God or not. But those two vital and essential elements of our communion with God are important because they express to us covenant communion with God. That's what it's all about. The sanctuary of his body, the sacrifice of it as a priest, and the offering, vital. But without covenant communion, they don't bring us anything of substance. So let me read our text for this morning. Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 9, just a few verses. It says this, But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which he has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second one to be sought out. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I do not care for them, says the Lord. Now in verse 6, we're given three ways of Jesus' superiority. He's uh, a better minister of a better covenant with better promises. Because the better promises are explained in verses 10 to 13, we will save those for our next time together in Hebrews. Before this morning, we're going to look at two sources of our hope, a better minister and a better covenant. In all this he's revealing, he's telling us something about where we find hope in life. He's saying, you want hope? You want a hope that won't be pulled out from under your feet? 
Well, don't look at your circumstances. Look at the better ministry. Look at the superior priests. Look at the superiority of Jesus in the nature and place of his ministry. He's the true priest in the true sanctuary. That's the first thing we want to look at today. It's centered on how Jesus is a better minister. You know, ministry is related to covenant communion. Mediator is related to covenant. He, he ministers as a mediator a better covenant. Those things are all related, and we're going to look at that today. But what does he mean by that? Well, the term covenant appears 17 times in the book of Hebrews. It's a very important word for Paul throughout the entire book, and really throughout the entire Bible. But what is a covenant? Let's start there. In its barest definition, and again, we could definitely build on this. There's volumes and volumes and tomes of volumes of theological writings that have built on this. But at the, the bare minimum, the word covenant is a bond between two parties. It's frequently ratified with blood, but not always, such as the marriage covenant, right? You don't necessarily have to butcher a cow to say, I do, on your wedding day anymore, right? Maybe some of you did. I don't know. A bit older than I am. But you remember those words you probably uttered, till death do us part? I mean, those words, the annulment of the covenant, was only applicable on death. It shows that it is an, a forever agreement is what it is. In Scripture, there are human-to-human -human covenants like that. David made a covenant with Jonathan, 1 Samuel 20. Again, Malachi 2 would be the reference for the marriage covenant. But for our purposes today and the purpose of the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, he's concerned with a more important category of covenant, those between God and man. For example, Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah. And the sign of that covenant was a, a bow in the sky. We call it a rainbow. Genesis 15 and 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Exodus 24, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And one thing about all of these covenants, all the covenants between God and man, is there's one single factor that is true of all of them. God is the initiator of them all. Man didn't bargain with God. He didn't make demands of God. He, he didn't force God based on his own value to make a covenant with him. They are all examples of God based on his sovereign pleasure determining to bless someone and to give them parameters so that way their relationship in a, such a way that God can bless them. That's what it is. One other distinction between the covenants that we find in the Bible that I want to talk about and this could be true of human to human and even human to divine, are what we call unilateral covenants and bilateral covenants. Let me explain that just briefly. In a unilateral covenant, the parameters that God establishes for promises, for, for blessings, are accompanied and accomplished by one party. Meaning one party alone is responsible. One party is the responsible party in a unilateral covenant. And in each and every single one of them that we find, it is accomplished by God alone. He won't leave it to chance. He won't let the failure of the inferior party ruin that covenant relationship. He's so committed in himself that he ensures the accomplishment of it by himself. 
Maybe you're familiar with Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God promises that in Abraham, all the world would be blessed. You remember the grisly scene of that covenant, don't you? You know, in our purified, sanitized kind of Western culture, we read it and we see it's kind of barbaric. I mean, rending animals in two so that their carcasses are strewn across from each other, creating an aisle in between. Side by side, they form a pathway of which the covenanter was to walk. A pathway of blood and gore and dismemberment. This was the common practice of the ancient world. And it really helped to kind of seal the significance, the seriousness of their agreements, right? I mean, today you make an agreement with someone, you simply just shake their hand, maybe sign a piece of paper, and you're done. And you don't really get the impact or the severity of fulfilling your end of the deal. But back then, the seriousness of the commitment is emphasized in this savage fashion. What was normal for both parties at the time is that both parties would walk between the disemboweled and dismembered animals, signifying with each step, looking to their right, looking to their left, and seeing the horror of what it would be to fail in the covenant. Each step they take, they get a picture. If I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, this will be me. Another step, another picture of mutilation. This will be me if I fail. Another step, another image of the grim specter of death. This will be me if I fail. Shocking picture. And it served the ancient world very well. That's why the term in Hebrew for a covenant is the word breathe. It comes from the root word to cut to cut flesh, to cut bone, to make a covenant. And what's shocking about Genesis 15, if you understand that practice in the ancient world, is only God passes through the pieces of animals. Abraham was prohibited from passing through. Genesis 15, 12, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep, much like he did Adam in the garden. He can never accomplish what God intends to accomplish. God is making a unilateral covenant, binding himself, fulfillment required only by himself. His own oath, he obligates himself. It's unconditional for man. It's unilaterally fulfilled by God. Now, this is the contrast that we see other times in Scripture. There's those covenants, and there's also what's called a bilateral agreement, a, a bilateral pact, a bilateral covenant. One such example, but not the only one, but the prime one in the minds of the audience of our text is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. It was a conditional bilateral covenant. What that means is that God, who is the first party of the covenant, would bless the second party of the covenant, the people, if and only if they fulfilled the parameters of the agreement. In all the cases that we read about the Mosaic economy, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. 
We see the parameters had growing severity as well, right? If they were obedient, things got better and better and better for them. But if they disobeyed, it got worse and worse and worse. I mean, you can read Deuteronomy 28. It's graphic what covenant curses entailed. Famine, pestilence, wars, invasion, exile, devouring their own children. I mean, you would think when those stipulations were set up, you probably wouldn't want to sign up for that agreement. But what we find is after that's been made abundantly clear to them, Exodus 24, verse 7, we read this. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people in their hearing. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Obey and live. Disobey and die. That's the covenant in view in verse 6 of our text. And it says Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And what Paul wants you to see today is that the gap between life and death, between the east and the west, the gap between the covenant of the old and the covenant of the new is so incredibly far apart because his covenant ministry is so superior to the minister of the old. Now, it doesn't take any advanced degrees or much difficulty to get to the fact that Jesus is better than Moses, the minister of the old covenant. Christ has obtained a much more excellent ministry than Moses. We can see this all throughout the book of Hebrews. I'll give you some examples. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. We see Jesus conveyed the ultimate message, a superior revelation compared to the words spoken by the Old Testament prophets. His words are uniquely divine, emanating from the, the very essence of God, the Son of God. He's the embodiment of the Word of God. Moses, in contrast, served as a steward of that Word. It reflects the huge distinction between the messenger and the divine source of the message. In Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, Christ is the creator, the heir, the explicit imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory. He upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Friends, Moses is merely a servant. Hebrews 1, 3, and 1, 5 to 10, we saw Jesus made full atoning sacrifice for sin one time and sat down. Moses merely had human priests and animal sacrifices that foreshadowed the atonement that Christ accomplished. But in and of themselves, Moses' work accomplished nothing. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, we see Jesus obliterated the devil's works, delivering us from the perpetual bondage of sin and the fear of death. Moses, on the other hand, he served as a messenger revealing our enslavement to Satan, sin, and death without ever achieving real deliverance. Moses made us aware, but Moses could never deliver us. Hebrews 3, 1 to 5, we see Jesus as the son, the heir, the builder of the house that is the church. Moses is merely a household slave who watched over the children until the heir came. Hebrews 4, 1 to 13, Jesus is the Sabbath rest promised by God. 
Moses merely told men about the sign of the Sabbath rest, but he never even got anyone to Sabbath rest. He himself was barred from even entering the promised land. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Jesus, the supreme high priest, has traversed the heavens, understanding our frailty, our pities, our plights, and our weaknesses. He guides us to the throne of grace. Moses, the priests of the Mosaic Covenant can only pass through a earthly temporal veil once a year. They never took a single soul to the throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, Jesus serves as the everlasting king priest, conquering death with his, with his imperishable life, living sinlessly, offering perfect obedience, empathizing with his followers, establishing a superior covenant, ensuring complete salvation. We saw this on account of his dual mediation. He makes the sacrifice of his humanity on the altar of his deity, interceding for us unceasingly. He guides us into the behind the veil into the presence of God. Moses, his priesthood could only offer an imperfect, temporary, shadowy glimpse of those profound blessings. Jesus has a better ministry than Moses. And Jesus has a, a better ministry because Christ is a much more glorious and superior mediator than Moses ever could be. Jesus stands as the superior prophet, ushering in complete revelation, dispelling our ignorance, and it is through Christ that we get an understanding of our triune God. Jesus serves as a greater king, a greater ruler, delivering us from spiritual adversaries, from the world, from sin, from death and the devil. He persuades us, he subdues, he draws, he sustains us, he liberates us, safeguards us on the path to a heavenly kingdom. Jesus embodies a finer priest, reconciling us with God, presenting us as holy and pleasing in his presence. And as a better mediator, he a, he's a, has a better ministry of a better covenant. It is mediated, it is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. Now the term mediator, it's, it's easy to understand. It's a middleman, a go-between, a representative between two parties. And as a dual-natured mediator, Jesus Christ steps between God and man. And he removes all the obstacles that separate us. As a mediator in his death, he secures the interest of both parties, God's offended justice, and our penal offenses or penalties. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We saw that all throughout chapter 7. He sacrificed once for all, for all time. Now another important feature is the term mediator in the book of Hebrews is always used in reference to the new covenant and the death of Jesus every single time. For example, Hebrews 9, 14 to 15. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a better covenant, of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise 
of the eternal inheritance. Hebrews 12, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You see that? The new covenant is ministered to us by the blood of our Lord. It is inaugurated by his death. And this was prefigured in the Old Testament, in the old economy, Exodus 24, which I've mentioned before. You know, Moses took a bull, spills its blood, puts it into two basins. He pours some onto the altar and some onto the people. In Exodus 24, verse 8, just the verse right after we had just read in verse 7, where they said, we have heard and we will obey. Verse 8 says, so Moses took the blood and he sprinkled on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. The first half, pouring the blood on the altar, Exodus 24, verse 6, shows the application to God. The second half, pouring the blood on the people, verse 8, shows, it, shows its application to men. In between, in the Old Testament, we have the ministry of a mediator, Moses. He is a type of the one who would supersede him in inaugurating the new covenant. That's what we see with Jesus in Luke 22, verse 20. On the night that he was betrayed, forsaken by his friends, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, giving the sign of the new covenant, communion, to the Gentiles, that they are to proclaim until the Lord comes. That's what we're supposed to do as the church. Paul gives the sign to the Gentiles. So Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, removes the barrier erected by sin, and he establishes a superior covenant, a new covenant. So in all of that, we can see how Jesus is a better minister, a better mediator, a better go-between than Moses. And Moses died, and his bones are in the wilderness somewhere. But Jesus lives forevermore. Now let's look at second, how our hope should be grounded in the fact that this better minister brings us a better covenant. I know I've said a lot about covenant, but let's look some more at it today. Hebrews 8, let me read our text again, 6 and 7. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which, he, which has been enacted on better promises. The first covenant had been faultless. There had been no occasion sought for a second. See that last part there? If there was nothing wrong with the old, there would be no need for another. Hopefully that sounds a little bit familiar to you. Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, not to be designed or designated from the order of Aaron? That sounds familiar, right? If the first priesthood had been faultless, there wouldn't have been need for another priesthood. If the old covenant priests could save people, there would be no need for another kind of priest to come. In other words, even though the Aaronic priestly line had been in place for centuries, it was always intended to be an inferior foreshadowing. It never got the job done. 
and in his coming as a priest. He does away with all other subordinate, inferior priests. Friends, there is only one priest. All others are obsolete. There's only one priest. And I don't care what the Antichrist in Rome says about it. The same alignment of reasoning is true here. If the old covenant was perfect, if it was so terrific, so glorious, so successful, there wouldn't have been need for another one. In verse 7, it says, no place would have been sought. We should actually add, would have been continuously sought for another. It's in the imperfect tense there, meaning they were continually looking for a replacement to that inferior type. In other words, he's saying Jesus is not only better, because he's a better priest, and because he's a better priest, he brings a better covenant. Jesus is better because he mediates the ultimate covenant. And he quotes for us Jeremiah 31. And we'll get more detail to Jeremiah 31 next time. But God would not have announced a new covenant if the old one was working. You've heard the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And the author makes this point explicitly clear in verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. In other words, the very fact that he has to announce a new covenant tells you that there was something insufficient, something broken about the Mosaic economy. It was broken. It had to be replaced. And so those who are wanting to return to Judaism at this time in the early church, they're kind of struck right between the eyes. If you want to go back to the old covenant, I mean, remember this fact. The Old Testament saints themselves didn't want to be under the old covenant. They're always looking for a better covenant, longing for something better than this. They were looking for something better. Friends, don't find your home in the wilderness wanderings of the desert of Israel's history. When you have the fountain of living waters in Jesus Christ. They lived under the gavel. They lived under the executioner's blade. They lived under the immense pressure of never being actually safe. Obey or die. Obey or die. Obey or die. That is the law. Reminds us of even Adam in the garden, doesn't it? Don't eat of this tree or the day you do, you will die. In a similar way, death hung like a gavel over the Old Testament saint. I mean, they were gonna be, they were gonna fall. There was gonna be a day where they didn't obey and they were gonna be dashed upon the rocks of covenant curses. Again, verse seven, it says, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant. Let's stop there. Make no mistake, my friends. The frailty of the old covenant was intended by God. You know, God ordered that covenant that way. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a lack of foresight. It was intentionally flawed so that no one would put their hope in the shadow over the sun, the substance. Look at verse 8. My covenant, which I established, and he says, I will establish a new one. Do you see that? Both covenants initiated by God. God is the initiator. So why can fault be found in the covenant God made? It has to do with the fact that God doesn't want you to put hope in the symbol. And its purpose, the purpose of the old covenant, was never to save people. People were never saved by the net mechanism of the old covenant. Not a single soul. 
Don't let this one fact escape you. Salvation under every dispensation is always the same. By grace, through faith in Christ. Every single time. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. All saved the same way you are. You just have more special revelation than they did. The old was intended to lead us to the new. To make us thirst for the new. To make us hunger for the new. It was a schoolmaster that led us to Christ. And once we have Christ, friend, we don't need the old superintendent any longer. Galatians 3, 24 to 25, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So what's the fault? Well, it sets forth an objective standard for living, being right with God. It provided no power to live up to that standard. It was written on cold, unfeeling, unliving tablets of stone, not on vibrant, regenerate human hearts. That's the first fault. The other fault we see, again, it's not just the lifelessness provided by the old covenant, but the people themselves. Do you notice that there? Verse 8 says, for finding fault with them. We see a, a remarkable comparison here in verses 8 and 9. They did not follow the covenant. The people who lived under the old covenant, they failed. And they failed miserably. But look at this, the, the tenderness with which God gave them that covenant. Look at verse 9. I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Do you see that picture? I guided them. I held them. I protected them. I directed them. As a father takes the fragile, delicate, much smaller hand of his child by the hand, a picture of kind intimacy, God says, I took them by the hand and they didn't want to walk with me. They spurned my tender mercies, my protective care. They pulled their hand away and they ran off. They withdrew their hand from mine. They ran into the world. They ran into the dangers of the world, the perils of the world. They ran into the guidance of the world and the wisdom of the world. They ran out from under the tender care of their father to play in the street. Verse 9 says, they didn't continue in the covenant. You see, in the old economy, if you don't stay in covenant obedience, there are terrible curses. It says, I turned my back on them. Verse 9. Says I didn't care for them. And what a dramatic image. I turn back. I don't care about them. They are dead to me. That's the standard of the old covenant. Obedience, blessing. Disobedience, cursing. Now let me give you an important theological implication from this text. Hopefully you see the language there. They didn't continue in the covenant. That tells us something very significant about human effort in the old covenant, doesn't it? Made with their fathers. For they didn't continue in my covenant. And so it amazes me that people will viciously and adamantly defend the pagan spawn of the fork-tongued devil himself, libertarian free will. 
you know, those who insist on the idol of their economy or their autonomy are exactly what we see in Israel. They don't want the hand of God holding them, guiding them, directing them. They want their own liberty. And they'll hold their fist in raging defiance to the sky before acknowledging their need for God. And under their own strength, what do we see? They fail. Their commitments fail. They fail. He finds fault with them, verse 8. They didn't continue in the covenant, verse 9. Friends, without the sovereign monergistic work of regeneration of God on the heart, the gospel, the new covenant, you cannot believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot and you will not. You will be left with your cold, dead heart without life. And think about this. How much external encouragement does somebody need to come to Christ? I mean, if it was just external encouragement to come to Jesus, I mean, how much was Israel lavishly prepared with external encouragement to come to Christ? I mean, they were promised blessing upon blessing upon blessing, temporal and lasting. They were placed in a relationship where, if, again, if external stimuli was the key, then they had it in spades. They had prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't disobey or I'll curse you. They had positive and negative examples to help them. If you'll just obey. If it was based on man to just obey, they had a lot of motivation, didn't they? With every possible motivation, we see repeated over and over again, the free will of Israel shows that men will always break the covenant. Unaided, men break the covenant. They break it again and again, and they go into exile, and they come back and they break it again and again. They spit in the face of God. It's an unending cycle. You want to read about that? Read the book of Judges for just a few minutes. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It always ends in desolation. No one in Israel ever lived up to the standard. They had to look to heaven and wonder, is there another way? Is there a better king? Is there a better way? Is there a better priest? Something better. Friends, our will is no better than the people whose bones scatter the Israel wandering in the wilderness. It isn't free. It's an offense to God and it's offended by him. Romans 8, verse 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. See why God finds fault with the first covenant? They are not able to live up to the standard of the law. It cannot help them. It lacks the ability to give them life from the deadness of their sins. It lays out the standard, yes, but it never provides life. The new covenant, my friends, provides life. If you're a sinner here this morning, maybe, maybe you realize you're lacking something. You lack focus. Your life's a mess. You, you have no purpose. Your family's a wreck. You know what you're doing in life? You think, well, maybe I just need to, a commitment to do better, right? So you showed up this morning. Maybe I'll go to church. I'll do better. Well, let me tell you this. First, you're in the right place. Second, that kind of thinking, I'll just do better. It will lead you to death in the sandy wilderness. You don't need nor can you do better. You need someone who has done better for you. 
And you need a new heart to even recognize that someone and to believe in faith in him who has done better. Let's look back at our text. Radically different, though, the new covenant and the old. The old covenant was a gavel of death, never gave life. Let's look at the new. Verse 8 and 9. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. What a hope. It will not be like that covenant. Friends, it's not new in the sense of a reduplication of the old. It's not new in that it fixes up the old, like a broken down car gets fixed up and now someone's trying to tell you it's new. Not at all. New wine requires new wine skins. You can't put new wine in old wine skins. That's the idea. It doesn't work that way. It's not the old one renewed. It's of a totally different kind. It is of a completely different order. Just as Jesus is the priest of a different order, the new covenant is of a totally different order. So what we mean by new is not a place in time. Yes, it was ratified in time, but new is not a temporal chronological indicator here. By new, the states of the old economy, the apostles of the new, mean that it's of a different order altogether. So many times we get confused about the Old Testament saints, wondering, well, how are they saved? But the new covenant isn't ratified till Jesus comes, and the old covenant doesn't save anybody. Friends, it's not new in time. Yes, it was inaugurated in Jesus' death, amen. But it was still in effect before its inauguration. It transcends time. It transcends place. So that all who have ever been saved were saved in virtue of the new covenant. Of a different order than the old. They have different intentions. They're of a different order. The old covenant exposes you. The new covenant heals you. I mean, you can contrast that. Look at Jeremiah 32 verse 40. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. You see how different that is from the old one? They didn't keep the covenant. I don't care for them. In the new, I will put a heart in them that they will not turn from me. And I will never turn from them. The old covenant, he took them by the hand. They spurned it in the new covenant. He will not allow them to even turn away and he will never turn away from them. Even when we fail miserably. Let me contrast that with something we find in the New Testament. Go ahead and turn to Luke 22. It's where I'm going to spend the rest of our time. We'll come back to some of these glorious themes when we meet again, but I want you to see something in Luke 22. And we'll be looking at verses 15 through 20. I want to just give you some insight from the greater context just to kind of contrast so vividly the deadness of the stipulations of Mosaic's economy and the tender life of the new covenant initiated by our loving Lord. Verse 15, we see Jesus lovingly expresses these words. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Just think about that right now. Can you perceive the depth of Christ's heartfelt anticipation in that moment? earnestly look forward to eating this with you. I mean, he's genuinely looking forward to sharing the Passover feast with his disciples, even though he is fully aware of the price that that is going to cost him. 
Gethsemane offers us a glimpse into the profound impact of Christ's knowledge of this, paralyzing its intensity. In Gethsemane, we get a picture of how daunting the prospect of facing covenant judgment is to the heart of our Lord. You see, he has to die the old covenant curses for God's people in order to inaugurate the new. And so he knows as he's about to inaugurate the new, he must undergo the punishment of the old. We should stop and think about that. I longingly look forward to eating that with you. I mean, how does this revelation impact your appreciation of Christ's tender love for you? He comprehends the depths of your heart, all of its flaws and all of its sins. He not only goes to the cross for your sake, but he longs to dine with you. He'll take the covenant curses. As unsettling as that may be, it's profoundly comforting. For if he knows me, he anticipates my shortcomings, still desires to commune with me in covenant communion. What could possibly make me fear? Is there anything that can truly separate me from the love of Christ? Verse 15, it also says, so I have longingly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Do you see those three words? Immense significance. Before I suffer. Christ knew he had to take the covenant curses due for his people in order to inaugurate the new. In verse 16, he says, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I mean, just as the Passover commemorated Israel's liberation from Egypt, it also foreshadowed the ultimate deliverance from sin and death, which was accomplished by Christ. And here Christ declares that his intention is going to be refrained from partaking from that supper until the complete salvation of all of his people of all time is realized. It is then that he will joyfully share in a meal with all of his people in the grand marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, I wish we could spend more time there, but let's, let's delve into the significance of the Lord's Supper itself. It's outlined in verses 19 and 20. It's important to remember that the disciples still had the taste of the Passover on their mouths, okay? In this moment, Christ takes the bread and he breaks it. And he enters something entirely unprecedented in the context of Passover meal ever. I mean, for over 14 centuries, Nothing like this had ever been spoken of at a Passover feast. Nothing like this at all. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. I mean, the disciples couldn't have missed the profound connection that Jesus is drawing from them here. I mean, they still, again, they have the, the flavors of the, the bitter herbs of the Passover lamb on their tongues. And here's Jesus breaking bread, declaring, this is my body. He establishes an incredibly close association between the impending death, the slaughter of the Passover lamb, and his own imminent death. This is my body, which is given for you. I mean, what does this mean? He's given them such a profound significance of what he was going to experience the next day. In fact, all the disciples' expectations were about to be obliterated the next day. You know that, right? I mean, they thought... In his first coming, he was going to be a kingly monarch, killing all of his foes. It wasn't to be. That's true of his second coming. But Christ is resolute and explained to them one more time what is about to transpire to him. The mean of his impending death, the mean of his suffering, 
the theological, redemptive, historical significance of all of his actions. The act of breaking bread and offering it. I mean, the first thing he does is point them to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The bruised, broken, crushed body for our iniquities. The broken bread and the body sacrificed, it directly correlates with Isaiah 53. The body is metaphorically broken for the sake of the people. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising, covenant curses, for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we're healed. We see a vicarious nature of his actions. It emphasizes, this is my body which is given for you. The substitutionary character of our Lord echoes the language of Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but each of us has turned his own way. And what should we get? Covenant curses, right? We took our hand from God's hand. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Look, when you go astray, when you forsake God, you should be punished. According to the old covenant, cursed. But God caused all of those cursings for his people to fall on a substitute. Now look at verse 20. I want to do this last part here. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's conveying to his disciples that his blood, symbolized by the wine in the cup, will ratify the covenant that will actually save them. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. I mean, for six centuries, the faithful of Israel had been eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of that promise that the broken nation that was given by Jeremiah. And when Jeremiah uttered those words, it was filled with all sorts of lament in his day as he's weeping because they're all about to be exiled. He knew it wasn't to be in his day. On this special night, Jesus announces to this small remnant of Israel, the promise has found fulfillment in me. And this promise will be inaugurated through my death. Friends, this revelation is not only astonishing, but it's profoundly glorious. The promise, the wonderful promise fulfilled in Jesus' death, that's what he's conveying to his disciples. His death is emphasized again another time as, as substitutionary. This cup is for you. This blood is poured out for you. This cup is poured out for you. He's not, under, he's not again, he's not undergoing this for his own sake. He didn't have to die covenant curses. He was perfect. He's doing it out of love for you. Taking your place. I want to emphasize, my friends, that this is undeniably the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Christ isn't just doing this merely for our benefit. He's standing in our stead. And the true horror of what Jesus is about to endure, the most profound horror is the divine curse that he receives from the Father in order to fulfill the requirements of the new covenant. You know, a lot of times we look at Christ's crucifixion and, and we hone in on the physical aspects of Jesus' suffering his bruised and broken body. And, and I don't want to diminish those significances here. When we consider his physical death, I mean, the anomaly of it. Death was introduced into the world by sin, and Jesus was sinless, so he shouldn't have to die. But that's not the ultimate horror. 
it's crucial to understand that the cross itself is not the curse. The cross is merely the instrument used to inflict human suffering upon Christ. The most profound horror is what Jesus endured for us, including the cross, but the, the cruel, torturous instrument of punishment was the divine curse. This is why he cries out that cry of dereliction, Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why do you not care for me? Remember, that's what the old covenant did. You run out from under his providences, you get covenant curses. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness God requires. The true horror of the cross lies in the fact that at the cross, at the cross, the wrath of God is unleashed in the one place in the universe it had no rightful place to strike. It had no rightful place there. So Jesus says this is the cup of the new covenant. It points to the fact that he takes covenant curses. The long-awaited event that would bring about the realization of the promise given by Jeremiah. I hope you see that contrast there. Jesus knew his own disciples would falter and forsake him. They wouldn't hold his hand, so to speak, right? I mean, Jesus was well aware that on that very night, his own disciples would forsake him and flee. On that fateful night, just again, hours before Matthew recounts this for us, Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples left him and fled. In his hour of utmost need, every one of his disciples forsook him and fled. I mean, can you fathom the emotional weight carried by the inspired author Matthew as he had to record these words about himself and his friends? Under the old covenant, that would mean death. That would mean covenant curses. But under the, old, under the new covenant, it means that when we fail, when we fall short, he pursues us. He won't let us go. He undertakes the curses of the law so that we might receive blessings in him. He warned them of his impending betrayal. Yet his love for them remains steadfast to the end, to the max. It was to these imperfect, flawed people that he gives the new covenant in his blood. It was his blood that determines their place in the new covenant, not their worthiness. Let's get that clear this morning. The new covenant, unlike the old, doesn't revolve around your worthiness. doesn't revolve around your actions or obedience. It doesn't revolve around you at all. It centers on the deeds through which he has done to redeem you. Just as Jesus' priesthood was of a different order, so the covenant which he mediates and ministers to us is of a different order, Friends, I invite you today, come to the better minister of the better covenant with better promises. So take us by the hand again, friends, in a way unknown under the old covenant. He will secure us forevermore. You have nothing to fear if you are in him. He will forgive your wickedness. 
He remembers our sins no more. I mean, this is our covenant, friends. And being under the priest of the new covenant, the better minister, friends, if we're attached to him, we are safe indeed. So again, this morning I, I played with you, those who are far off, strangers of the covenant. Come, have covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for these basic truths made anew to us. We thank you for the constant reminder that you give us of the, from the depth of your word that, Lord, we can never exhaust it. Lord, we can spend our whole lives studying it and we'll constantly find a source of hope in Jesus Christ. I pray you would wrap us up in him, that you would satisfy us in him, and you would give us life eternal in him, as you promised. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.